The following is brought to you by Dustin Campbell, Daily Tech News Show, Andy Beach, Nick Wood, and Craig. Welcome, everybody, to the Politics, Politics, Politics program for Friday, June 4th, 2021. It's your old pal, Justin Robert Young. We're going to get you all set for the weekend with an update on the infrastructure in two parts. First, I will update you with uh, the latest in the negotiations, Joe Biden meeting with Shelley Moore Capito, the senator, the Republican senator from West Virginia. Although, to hear Biden talk about Joe Manchin, the Democratic senator from West Virginia, as somebody who doesn't vote for him, hmm, maybe that line is a little thin. Apparently, Capito's the one that's on Biden's good side these days. But did they get anything done? We'll go over that. Also, we've got our second. Attack ad in our attack ad series. It's an ad called Laughter. I was, I might have seen it before, but I wasn't familiar with it. It's about Spiro Agnew. And if all you know of Spiro Agnew is him as vice president or Watergate or, or anything that, that happened before it, you're going to want to listen to this because it's a fascinating look back into history. Also, we are joined by J.D. Durkin, the new host of None of the Above on Cheddar, beginning at 8 p.m. this coming Monday, 8 p.m. Eastern Time. We talk about the new show, we talk about infrastructure, and we talk about whether or not the Democrats are going to be able to hold on to the House or the Senate in 2022. All that. But first! So a little peek behind the curtain here on the Politics, Politics, Politics program because of outstanding things that I need to do. Breaking news coverage on the Friday episodes are hard. Spoiler alert, because I record these episodes on Wednesday. So I was hoping that by the time that I got around to recording, I delayed recording and delayed recording and delayed recording, hoping that there'd be some kind of word from out of the Joe Biden, Shelley Moore Capito meeting. And, you know, we're, we're now pushing into the afternoon here on Wednesday. They were apparently meeting in the lunchtime hour. So we don't have any definitive uh, definitive news out of this. But we do have common knowledge. Common knowledge says that Shelley Moore Capito and Joe Biden are not going to make a deal. Common knowledge says that both the Democrats and the Republicans would like to do it. They both feel that it could benefit them, but that it is largely, likely, unlikely. So, with that being said, with the understanding that this is likely just going to be a negotiation for negotiation's sake, the question then becomes, who are they negotiating for? Well, on one hand, there is the reasoning on why the Democrats would again try to use reconciliation. We tried. We went, we talked to them. They would not budge. And and we were not willing to cut 
so far into the bone that the point of doing the kind of project that we wanted to do was now no longer coherent. Why would the Republicans want to do it? Well, the Republicans, while I, I believe they think that they are going to get back into the House, into the Senate in 2022, they also, I do believe they think that of anybody else, Joe Biden is the guy that they could deal with on the Democratic side, mostly because Joe Biden is a deal maker. Now, we're going to get into this with J.D. a little bit later on whether or not it's kind of offensive, the the idea that uh, Joe Biden really wants to make a deal and it's his, his staff that's uh, keeping him from doing it. But the word on the street was that Joe Biden might be willing to make a deal around a trillion dollars that spread out over eight years. How that's paid for is a different story. But that's what Capito believes. So if we're then going to read into the tea leaves of the fact that we still don't have any information on this, well, it's pretty good, right? If this was an open and shut case where they walked in, they, they took a look at each other, they understood that there was no wiggle room here, and they walked out, well, that would be probably a bad sign. Instead, we're waiting and waiting and waiting. A reminder, Congress is back on the Hill after their Memorial Day recess on June 7th. Tick tock, tick tock, tick tock. <laughs> the ad you've just heard is called Laughter, and it takes a, a, a little bit of explanation here. You see a television. It starts to pan over to the television and you see in literal black and white Spiru Agnew for vice president. All the while, our unseen protagonist goes from a giggle to a guffaw to eventually a hack so loud that only a life lived where cigarettes were thought to <laughs> bring you greater respiratory pleasure and not cancer does a hack emit. This was uh, issued in the 1968 campaign. And the man who made it is also somebody that made, for my money, the most brutal attack ad of all time. Something that we covered in Raise the Dead Season 2, 1964, Goldwater versus Johnson. It's called The Daisy Girl. And it shows a little girl plucking petals off a daisy, her non-linear counting. She's like... One, seven, three, because she's a little girl, right? The height of innocence. She ain't even know her numbers yet. That, that cadence is interrupted with the military precision of somebody counting down a missile launch. Ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five. As the uh, picture zooms into the little girl's eye, which I've always thought looked really awesome. It looked like very mod. It zooms into the little girl's eye. The, the, the picture turns into a massive mushroom cloud and you hear the withering Texan accent of Lyndon Baines Johnson saying that this is the choice you face at the ballot box. A narrator then comes in and says that Vote for Johnson. It's too important for you to stay home. 
while you can listen to season two of, of Raise the Dead and I give full context to exactly what they were going for, I believe that the way that you experience Daisy Girl today is much in the way that people would viscerally experience it in 1964, which boils down to vote for me or you will be scorched in a nuclear holocaust, including your little girl. So laughter is not that bad. But it is pretty derisive, huh? Spiru Agnew for vice president is such a funny idea that somebody is laughing so hard they're going to cough up a lung? Well, it made me look back to why this would be quite so funny for a voter in 1968. Who was Spiru Agnew? What I found was that Spiro Agnew was not very well known on the national stage. And as I go forward and explain what his, you know, bona fides were, I, I want you to understand exactly how different the media landscape was in 1968 versus in 2021. There was less of it. So if you were a national player, you were blessed by national media at some point, right? You were talked about, you were discussed, you were on certain uh, uh, television shows, blah, 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 blah. Columnists wrote about you. It's not like now where somebody can go from unknown city councilman to a meme lord who people want to run for president all in the time it takes for a video to go viral. There was no Wikipedia, so you couldn't super easily look up somebody's backstory and understand who they were. And therefore, experience and the concept of being well-known simply mattered more. So, while the joke in that ad is that Spiro Agnew is not experienced enough to be vice president of the United States of America, it's going to seem odd when I read you his resume, which is the following. Spiro Agnew, at the point that he's nominated or picked by, by Nixon to be his vice president, is the governor of Maryland. He's not a dog catcher. He's not some small town mayor. He's the governor of a state. Now, you know, not every governor of a state immediately becomes a great vice president. And indeed, some can be ex inexperienced on the national stage. Cough, Sarah Palin, cough. But what I found fascinating was how Spiru Agnew got there. How did he get to the governor's mansion? After his uh, four-year term as a uh, executive, a, a county executive near to, uh, near to an end, Agnew knew that his chances of re-election were slim, given that his county's Democrats were starting to coalesce again. Remember that in the 60s, there was a gigantic pull apart of Democrats, uh, specifically over civil rights. So when the governor's seat comes open, the Democrats run three candidates, a moderate, a liberal, and an outright segregationist. This is in 1968, by the way. Not 1950, not 1960, not 1964. 1968, outright segregationist runs for the primary of Maryland's governor's race. And guess what? That segregationist, George P. Mahoney, wins. He wins. And so now Spiru Agnew is going up against Mahoney. The good news for Agnew is that Mahoney's so unpopular with some members of the Democratic Party that he begins to split the vote. In fact, Democrats for Agnew becomes something that is a real factor in this race. 
Mahoney, meanwhile, campaigns on uh, killing integrated housing. His quote was, your home is your castle. Protect it. Agnew, funny enough, because uh, Johnson had uh, made an ad. It was never aired against Barry Goldwater tying him to the KKK. Does tie Mahoney. Agnew ties Mahoney to the KKK, saying voters must choose between a bright, pure, courageous flame of righteousness and the fiery cross. Good Lord. And with that, Agnew beats Mahoney by about 0.5% of the vote. Now, you might say, in 2021, a man who wins that race, wins a race as a Republican in a place where Democrats usually win, beats a segregationist, therefore putting their bona fides on one side of that aisle. That, in 2021, is a pretty well-defined, interesting, and exciting candidate. In 1968, with the limited media available, it was Spiro who? That was a, a, a literal slogan that kind of stuck with him. It was used to symbolize the national confusion. According to the book American Melodrama about the 1968 campaign, three random pedestrians were in, in Atlanta, Georgia, were asked who Spiru Agnew was for a television report. They replied, it's some kind of disease. The second replied, it's some kind of egg. And the third said, he's a Greek who owns that shipbuilding firm. And here's something else that wouldn't play in 2021. Laughter. Laughter. Derisive laughter. Specifically in the idea that Spiro's got a name that isn't exactly, well, white sounding. It's just really hard to imagine that going over well in the modern era. Also, I, I, I just have a hard time thinking about what the experience question, how much that's changed from then to now. I mean, granted, we are in a post-game show to White House pipeline. But the idea of a first-term governor being a vice presidential nominee, like, now that just seems kind of smart, right? <laughs> like, would anybody be shocked if... Somebody picked up, you know, if, 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 if Ron DeSantis doesn't win the nomination, would anybody be shocked if Trump picked him? Would anybody be shocked if uh, a moderate picked Larry Hogan from Maryland, the same governor's mansion that Spiro Agnew once, uh, once held? Probably not. But there we go. Laughter from 1968. And by the way, it was... Totally unaffected. And Spiro Agnew, along with Dick Nixon, went on to stomp Hubert Humphrey. All right. Here's the reality. We do record these episodes on Wednesday. But if you are a member of the $3 Club, if you support us on Patreon, then you get access to the late edition. That is the latest we record a show in any given week. So everything that breaks about this infrastructure deal, if it happens on Thursday, it only goes in the late edition. That's when you're going to know it. Also, we're not going to have an episode about the jobs report that's going to come out on Friday until Sunday. And that's why you need to get the Sunday, Sunday, Sunday edition. That's where we take all of the Talking Head shows and I divine exactly what the narratives are going to be for the next week. So you can have my eyes 
on exactly what people are trying to do and whether or not they are being effective with it. It's all available to you if you support us at Take Politics Seriously at the $3 tier. Get your bonus episodes, the Sunday, Sunday, Sunday edition, the late edition on Thursday. And I got to tell you, this is a good week to do it. Also remember that your money, I work to make that worth it for you guys. What I do with the money is spend it on going to cover things for you in the field. And the first time that that's going to happen since... I guess the Senate elections in January will be the New York City Democratic primary for mayor on the 22nd. I'll be there for a couple days. I'm going to see uh, the, the I'm going to see the sights. I'm going to uh, I'm, I'm I'm going to catch some rallies. I'll be there for you in the waning days of that contest. Also going to do a meetup. More information on that as we get closer. But that's what we're spending the money on. We're spending the money on going out there and covering this for you. Thank you for keeping this kind of journalism alive. TakePoliticsSeriously.com Our guest today is the brand new host of None of the Above on Cheddar, debuting this Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern time. He is a stalwart of coverage, uh, specifically in Congress in Washington, D.C., and a great dude to boot. J.D. Durkin, welcome to the show. Jerry, good to be with you as always, man. Thank you for having me. First and foremost, congratulations. Uh, you are now, I guess, 72 hours from when this uh, <laughs> podcast airs of being a primetime cable political news host. Congratulations. Thank you so much. I remember the last time I did uh, the podcast with you, this was out there in conversation, but I couldn't say anything. I couldn't quite promote it. So now it's official and getting off the ground and... Uh, what a big privilege, man. Thank you for the kind words. Uh, no, I, I'm always, always, always thrilled when uh, uh, good people get rewarded. You have been doing really, really great work over there at Cheddar, and I'm glad that they agreed enough to put you in in, in the big boy slot there. Eight o'clock. <laughs> great, great, great uh, uh, position. Uh, so let, let's start there for a second. When you get this opportunity... What are you? What, 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 what's your immediate thought on what late night cable punditry needs and doesn't need any more of? Yeah, well, you know, I I think that uh, one thing I've realized from the last few years, you know, kind of closely studying the cable landscape like you have, and, and just kind of paying attention to our viewers at, at Cheddar News is there's a lot of people out there, man. They really don't feel as if I think the current cable news, especially the primetime space, really speaks to them. Um, yeah. I think Cheddar News has always kind of spoken to a lot of younger, more tech-savvy viewers, people who may not be aligned with a particular political party. And I think more and more we're seeing a lot of people who may kind of want their politics on an issue-by-issue basis and learn to see where maybe the Democrats make really good points, maybe where the GOP makes some really good points. And, um, you know, I, I, can, I think kind of want to look at issues through a lens of, of a bit more personal independence. So that's a bit of the spirit I, I want to bring to the show. And, you know, we've done a lot of coverage on things like the GameStop frenzy and the subreddit saga. I do a lot of coverage right now in like the meme coin crypto space. And those are the sorts of stories that uh, I don't think are reflected out there in, in, in cable news too well. So, you know, we'll still cover space and rocketry and tech and big business, all the things that have made Cheddar great and kind of bringing that spirit, a uh, spirit of curiosity to prime time, my man. Well, I think you'll know what all those things are, which I, I don't think is necessarily something that you can say about anybody else who's on cable at 8 p.m. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I have spent uh, quite some time. I do watch a lot of Tucker Carlson, who I guess now technically I'm up against in that slot. And uh, yes, that these don't tend to be the sorts of issues that uh, that get covered. So um, we're 
we're, we're really excited for sure, man. We're going to have uh, killer guests out of Capitol Hill and kind of newsmakers from leading industries. And, you know, I, I definitely don't, you know, I, I don't want this to be cynical. I want people to have confidence in the political process and learn. I think you'd agree. A yeah. more informed citizenry is so important. I want people to say, you know, I've seen these headlines out there. I've seen these other stories. I don't really get it. Uh, so I want none of the above to be a destination where they can go to or realize they're not getting those answers elsewhere. So this is literally a new option. This is none of the above, none of those other things that are out there. So we're hoping to do something different and uh, have a lot of fun as well. I think you're also in a very, very interesting spot where Cheddar being kind of by definition, this sort of hybrid media entity from its origination, understanding that the internet is going to be just as valuable a distribution model as cable is, uh, you're just in a, a more advantageous position. Like uh, there's, there's no way that anybody who's, who, like you said, Tucker Carlson, or even, you know, anybody who's on, on MSNBC or CNN, that they have to be talking to the audience that still bundles their cable packages because that's how their salaries are paid. Right. And that obviously is going to be an element of, of, of Cheddar's business model, but like you're built for, going viral. You're you're built to kind of speak to this audience that cares about those issues the most. And I think that it just gives you such a, a great playground and leeway to sort of talk about these things like nobody else is going to be able to because they've got to scare grandma every quarter hour. <laughs> playground is the right word for it. And um our our the guy who started Cheddar several years ago, John Steinberg, he I, he really did, man. He he saw where the puck was going. He saw this whole evolution of skinny bundles and, and new age digital distribution. He saw the generation of cord cutters really worked aggressively to get cheddar out ahead of it back in 2016. And, and it, and it has absolutely proved to be true. Um, now you look at a lot of the other networks. Now they have, you know, their own kind of, um, you know, streaming spinoffs in addition to their regular cable offering. So yeah. you know, look, when we launched, and I've been with cheddar now for four years, we used to call ourselves the post cable network. Um, ironically, we were uh, acquired by Altice. So now we are also a bit of a cable news uh, network. We're in 43 million cable homes, yep. Spectrum, Fios, Optimum, DirecTV, people could check us out. But I think kind of that core internet first focus with a killer social media following has been true to who we are and we get to continue it for a whole new year. It's awesome. And also you, the, 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 the political moment has uh, been, been met uh, by, you know, in, in your wheelhouse, right? Like when they're, when they're doing house committees with a, a deep effing value from Reddit, <laughs> like uh, that means that, that you, you know, the, 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 the mountain met Muhammad. Yeah. And I was very proud of that. Actually, we, we did an interview a couple months back. This is before, um, this is before Keith Gill or DF, uh, deep F and value was in that, uh, house financial services hearing. And, and we had an interview with, uh, chair Maxine waters and, and it was live on our airs where, you know, I kind of asked her casually, I said, you know, what witnesses are you looking for? And she said the name Keith Gill. And it was just one of many names. And I'm thinking to myself, Keith Gill, isn't that the is that deep F and value? Yeah. So I kind of went back to it and I said, can you, I was like, can you just confirm? I'm sorry. Did you say, just say Keith Gill? And then chair water says, yeah, I'm going to call Keith Gill tomorrow to come to Capitol Hill. So we were kind of able to break that, which was a, a huge story in subreddit and the wall street bets crowd that he then had to go to Capitol Hill, uh, which was first broken on our show. So uh, we've always loved kind of operating right in that sweet spot. I'll tell you what, among the things that COVID took from us was the ability for that specific circus to not be there physically. Like, although it was fun mm. to watch, you know, uh, the, the the Zoom background slowly devolve over the last year, uh, uh, you know, it, it would have been would have been great for, for everybody to have to go there uh, physically. Uh, oh, yeah. All right. Well, we'll hear JJD before we switch to actually talking about politics specifically. Uh, are there any beefs at eight o'clock you want to start? You want to take some shots at Tucker now? So so uh, so I can benefit from that. Absolutely not. I am going in in good faith here, my man. Come on. Listen, I know you got to team me up for that. I get that's the gig. But you also know I'm far too smart to take that bait. I'm not coming in to of cause course. problems right now. Look, I hope to set ourselves apart with, through our coverage. And, and you know, man, my background's in comedy. So I think that there's always been, um, you know, a bit of a, a more lighthearted, different lens by which I viewed news um, I, I take this the substance and the journalism very seriously without necessarily taking myself too seriously. And that's where I hope to uh, 
to separate. I definitely have my thoughts on how other people in the eight o'clock hour are doing their show. Sure. And listen, and, and you and I have also talked about this before. I've also learned a lot. You and I have friends at these other networks. I've yeah. learned from a yeah. lot of these people, um, especially here in Washington. I got tremendous um, friendships with people at CNN and MS and Fox, and it's been a privilege to learn from them over the years. I'm just hoping to do something a little different in primetime. That is the kind of even-handed, fair-minded... <laughs> Uh, uh, the moral fiber, the backbone that you can expect on J.D. Durkin's None of the Above. And that, of course, debuts this Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern time on Cheddar. So uh, everybody go ahead and do that. He wouldn't even take a shot at Tucker Carlson for the benefit of his friend. That's how much he cares about the integrity <laughs> of his as yet debuted program. Everybody who is listening to this needs to watch it. So uh, let's talk about infrastructure. Because uh, it is, I think, a fairly pivotal moment for not only Chuck Schumer, but also Joe Biden to to really find out what the utility of the Democrats winning those two seats in January really, really means. From your perspective, where are we now? My goodness. Well, it's just remarkable that Infrastructure Week was always such a recurring punchline here in Washington. And now we're like dealing with actual substantive infrastructure weeks is uh, a little bit of whiplash for people in the press corps. But I mean, where we're at is, you know, it's exactly that. I had a really interesting conversation last week with, with Senator Roy Blunt uh, of Missouri. We took the elevator together in Capitol Hill. And he told me what has kind of been talked about uh, in Washington a minute, which is that he senses President Biden personally is much more willing to make a deal maybe than other White House advisors or cabinet officials. And I think with this, you know, this kind of goes back to like, okay, how moderate is Joe Biden? Is he this classic Senate institutionalist, the guy who doesn't view compromise as a dirty word? Well, look, I think Joe Biden kind of recognizes, hey, if can he head into 2022 having hopefully defeated, I'm using that in air quotes, defeated COVID, put COVID more or less in the rear view and striking uh, even a lower price tag, bipartisan deal on infrastructure. That's a pretty sweet one-two punch to start off his presidency. And I think even objective observers would say that. So, you know, he seems a little more inclined to kind of work with uh, the Shelley Moore Capitos, the, the Senator Toomey's, the Roy Blunts of the world, uh, uh, you know, Barrasso, Wyoming. Um, you know, but on the other hand, you do have, you know, people like the Pete Buttigieg's out there of the world who say, hey, we are defining infrastructure differently. We're going to go big or go home. And I think that's the big question that's going to face congressional Democrats and Democrats at this White House. Do we work with Shelley Moore Capito? Do we lower our price tag and try and figure out the other parts through budget reconciliation? Or is this all for optics, which I'm still kind of thinking this might be. There's a lot of like good faith in, in like media quotes and like, oh, we'll take the meeting. But like, is the meeting really going to go anywhere or is the, is the appearance of compromise almost more important than the compromise itself? That's kind of the dynamic I'm watching right now. A bunch of stuff I want to unpack from there. But the first yeah. is this. It, it when I when I read the, 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 the tea leaves on the coverage of D.C., there is this weird back and forth between what you just said uh, uh, that, that the Senator Blunt said. That Biden wants to make a deal, but his staff, Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi, whatever you can fill in, fill in the boogeyman there, they're the ones stopping him. That 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 they might have a deal by now if it weren't for these meddling kids. And then the 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 pushback <laughs> on that is that's even low key offensive to kind of be saying that you know like well Grandpa really wants to make the deal, but is it's his you know, son or daughter that keeps upping his medication when he's about to sign the check. Like there's, there, there seems to be a back and forth on, 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 on that. Do you, where, where do you fall on it in, in talking to as many people that, that you're talking to? Like it does Biden really want to be much to his, you know, Senate learning the guy who strikes the deal, even if it means pissing off those around him that helped put him in the white house. I absolutely think so. I mean, this is a guy who came into the Senate when he was 29, 30 years old. He's been, you know, he knows the game as well as anyone in Washington. And I mean, for, what's really incredible to me is even that we're talking about bills in this day and age that are like up in the trillions. This was unthinkable even just a, a couple White Houses ago, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. the fact that the Republicans are now saying, okay, 
we're willing to go $928 billion over eight years. I know there's a lot of disagreements on like what are called pay fors. It's just a fancy way of saying, how are you going to pay for parts of a bill? But even the fact that the GOP is now saying to the tune of $900 billion, I mean, I think back to 2008, you know, the TARP bailout at the time seemed like the biggest, most gargantuan thing we had seen. And that was $700 billion. So we're now in a whole new era of big government spending that I I think kind of gets a, a little bit messed here. But yeah, my sense is, this president, Joe Biden, wants to be able to make a deal. And I think part of that is is messaging. He wants to be able to kind of cut off that GOP message to say, you know, well, hey, we we worked. And not only did I lower my price tag, we got a deal done. I had Shelly Moore Capito. She came into the White House. We negotiated. Um, you know, we don't we don't think that just because you're you have an R next to your name, we can't find common ground. And, you know, the sense is, I think, for some Democrats in support of that approach, and I think Senator Chris Coons may be one of them. They want to avoid that Republican talking point that's going to air incessantly on the Fox News's for the next 18 months that Democrats insisted on doing everything by themselves. And then there is no room at the table for Republicans. And they were, you know, overtaken by this radical socialist. Agenda. You know, you know, all the how all the sure. ads will be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think if Democrats can try and avoid that, they there's a there's a lot of interest to do so. And that starts with the president. Well, let's talk about those pay fors because the de- the 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 devil is often in the details uh, uh, mm-hmm. to catch people up again, and and we will have talked about this already at the beginning of the episode. But we begin with the White House plan being at around two point four trillion. The Republicans counter with six hundred billion. The Biden White House comes down to one point seven trillion, and now the Republicans are 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 tickling, tickling, tantalizingly the one trillion dollar mark, which they've been loath to kind of cross for pretty much of anything, including any of the COVID packages. Now, mm-hmm. mind you, this is still just part one of what Biden wants to do on infrastructure, but nobody can agree on how to pay for it, including the Republican idea saying this is going to be a gas tax. So it'll be paid for by usage of these infrastructure projects, which Biden doesn't want to do because that he feels that that violates his no taxes for people under a certain level. And the Democrats want to raise the corporate tax rate, which the Republicans feel like is a red line. So all that being said, I agree with you that this might be negotiation for the sake of negotiation. The question then becomes, what this benefits, and that gets me to my next question. Do the Democrats have 50 votes, even if they are going to try to slam this down the uh, uh, the, the, the reconciliation path? Because Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema, even today, don't seem to be on, on the same page. Biden took a shot at him on, on Tuesday, saying that two of our senators vote with the other side more often. Yeah, absolutely. The the corporate tax rate thing is so it is kind of such a silly component of all this, because it's not like we've had the corporate tax rate where it is for several decades. We've had it here for like three years. I mean, this is right. This is because of the Trump led the Trump, Paul Ryan, Mitch McConnell tax plan at the end of uh, 2017 that it went as low as it is. And Biden's not even looking to raise it to its pre-Trump levels. He's like, okay, listen, if you go to 28 percent, that's not unreasonable, right? And then even still, I think at Senator Joe Manchin, maybe to sort of give himself a bit more of an outsized room at the at the negotiating table here, he balks at that and he's like, okay, well, I'm actually only going to support 25. So, you know, how this is likely going to go is going to be some very watered down version of that call for a 28% corporate tax rate. It's going to fall much lower. And so now you're dealing with yet another White House, whether it's a Democrat or Republican, that's dealing with a deficit and that's passing off something onto the credit card, onto future generations of Americans. That just tends to be how these bills go. Um, so, you know, I know the pay for conversation gets, you know, a lot of oxygen and, and, and understandably so, but, you know, Republicans completely unwilling to t- really talk at all in good faith about that corporate tax rate is in and of itself uh, very telling. And all this also opens up again, why we continue to have this this uh, this remarkable filibuster conversation and why I think those two senators that were unnamed by President Biden in those remarks continue to get hounded by reporters about it all the time. Because, you know, if you are not really willing to have a filibuster reform conversation, then Democrats are only as powerful as their most conservative 
Democratic senators. And that is those two from West Virginia and Arizona. And, you know, I, I don't get the sense this is not going to be paid for. I think we're going to have another bill that ends up adding to the, the debt and deficit conversation. But I think, uh, you know, the white giving the White House an opportunity to say, well, at least we got it done is going to be uh, preferable to, you know, sticking their guns to that 28 percent uh, rate that they've called for, even though, hey, you listen to Mayor Pete, uh, Mayor Pete, excuse me, Secretary, Pete, Secretary Pete. Uh, in, in, in all of his interviews, he continues to, you know, he, he's very much holding the line and he does the Sunday shows and he says, you know, it's got to be this big. It's got to cover the care economy and uh, and paid family leave. And, and we believe supporting people at the home getting them back to the workforce that all counts as infrastructure. We got to you know, talk about the corporate tax rate. I, I don't know if the final version of this is going to be what Secretary Buttigieg um, has been calling for. Uh, by the way, news also in the, uh, in the middle of the week that the reconciliation method by which they would, the Democrats, specifically Chuck Schumer, would hope to pass this bill is going to be a little bit more complicated this time, including the idea that they will have to effectively pass new budgets each and every time they want to use mm -hmm. it. And it might come with some, uh, uh, you know, the economy might have to be looking not as good for them to do it, according to the, the Senate parliamentarian. But but let me let me get back to this this mansion and cinema issue, even if let's say they were for the filibuster reform. If you don't have 50 votes, it doesn't matter if you have yeah. the filibuster reformed. Like, uh, is you seem pretty confident that this infrastructure deal is going to get done one way or another. It, it, so you believe then that Mansion and Cinema will eventually come around? I don't think they are necessarily going to come around. What I think is is more likely is that the White House kind of gives up that fight for a higher corporate tax rate. I, I think I think the pay for part of the conversation is more easy. In other words, I, I believe the White House, it's more important to the White House to make a deal and not have the pay fors, not pay for it the way that they want to and unfortunately be stuck in the deficit side of the conversation um, than it is then those two senators are are, are going to buckle. Now, the filibuster is also important on, on things like voting rights, which is, you know, yeah. really crucial. Democrats see this as that they're like, this is existential. We're like really dealing with a crisis at this moment. Um, so I think it's all kind of, you know, when I'm there on gaggles, you know, we call them gaggles or press scrums on the Hill. It's a ton of reporters. Um, now we're all back in close quarters after kind of everyone's yep. vaccinated on the Hill. But um, that, you know, the filibuster questions come come flying fast and furious. And uh, it has to do with all these things it has to do with, you know, climate future of climate bills. If there's future uh, work on, you know, on, on crime or law enforcement bills, voting rights, certainly infrastructure. It's, you know, the filibuster really going to that this is one of, of many uh, potential implications of filibuster reform. I, I don't see that changing though anytime soon. Well, you know, there is that that old saying that that uh, a man plans and God laughs. If there is a two part infrastructure deal for Biden's uh, roadmap here and they're having this much trouble with phase one, how do you think phase two is going to go, J.D.? <laughs> Yeah, that's a great question. That, that re now you're really getting into the uh, Elizabeth McDonough parts of the conversation. Someone you and I have talked about. You, you referenced her her role as Senate parliamentarian a short time ago. How many bites at this budget reconciliation apple will Democrats really be able to get? And I think it has still been a little bit of an open question. You're right. Just meaning some more complications. Um, you know, there's a chance they try and do a smaller infrastructure bill and then rely on reconciliation for something else. Um, but they want to try and get as as technical as technically as, as many opportunities, as many bites at that apple between now and the midterms as possible. So, um, you know, they'll have to very carefully pick and choose. Uh, maybe that second part, that massive second part of infrastructure doesn't go. But look, the priorities for Democrats are obviously the American jobs plan, the American families plan, which is separate and puts an emphasis on on child care and pre-kindergarten community college. Um, and but they want that specifically to be funded by increasing taxes on higher income Americans. Just not really clear that they are going to be able to do that. So I think right now they are they are talking a big game. They are shooting for the stars here. They're they're you hear the phrase go big or go home uttered by one Democrat every single day on Capitol Hill. Um, and I think they're just going to going to try and do as much as they physically can. And then just head into the midterms and say, well, we tried to work with Republicans and tried to do what we can on behalf of Americans who need it. So it's all going to come down to messaging. Let's talk about the midterms. How much time realistically 
does DC have to actually do DC things before everybody starts worrying about exactly what's going to happen next November? Uh, I give it another six months and then we're done. I mean, we, we really are. It's, it's already June. Yeah. So we'll get the rest of this year to legislate next year's shot. That That's the reality. You know, there'll be bills. There'll be things talked about. They'll have sessions and, you know, they'll come in for, for, you know, formal pro forma gavelins and things like that. But in, in a midterm election year in any election year, um, the focus is going to be on retaining the job you have. And some of these house races, especially are going to be so, so expensive. And so fundraising is going to become essentially a full-time job. I think that's the dirty little secret for a lot of these members. So you really just get a few more months left to legislate. And I think that underscores the urgency, um, of Democrats to try and focus on infrastructure and, and get some of these things done. The other thing is, you know, we haven't really talked about him yet, but leader Mitch McConnell, who for quite some time has really been the shrewdest operator in Washington, the yeah. man who, you know, kind of plays a, a far, like a 5D level of chess oftentimes. Yeah. You know, even he, I think even Senator McConnell demonstrating a willingness to negotiate is in and, in and of itself a tactic, because even if he's not serious about negotiating, he knows that the longer he plays this game of saying, well, you know, we'll come higher, we'll whatever, whatever, that is only going to delay how long all these negotiations take. And that's going to stall the Democratic agenda. So it's quite possible that we're still sitting here in August and may not fully have this infrastructure package fully baked and, and signed, sealed and delivered. Democrats don't have a lot of time. I think we think the midterms are like many, many months away. Well, the midterm election year is a wasted year. Members are going to spend every waking opportunity, not here in Washington, not on Capitol Hill, not doing the job they were sent here to do. They're going to be back in their district raising money and fundraising to keep their job so they can try and be here for basically calendar year 2023. So um, it is definitely a frustrating process. And I understand why, why voters get as frustrated with members of Congress as they do. I actually don't think that McConnell or the congressional Republicans making a deal with Biden is necessarily even the worst thing for them. Mm -hmm. I, th I think that they can still sell, look, we're the check on, on the real radicals, right? Like we are, we are a check on, on the green new deal. All that stuff was dead in the water because we held the line it, you know, we, we, we made a good deal for, for America, blah, blah, blah. I, I, you know, I, I think them getting a deal done isn't terrible also because I think they believe that this is a done deal in 2022, that they're going to get the house and the Senate back, which is why this midterms mm -hmm. is particularly juicy because we have very thin margins, well, a non-existent margin in the Senate and a very thin margin in the house. Yeah, absolutely. And I my my best sense is still talking with uh, Democratic and, and GOP staffers on the Hill. The sense is still Republicans will control. I think Kevin McCarthy senses, OK, as long as I can keep the quieting, if I, as long as I can quiet the totally bonkers infighting yeah. that's happening with my party, if I could quell the Kingsinger versus Marjorie Taylor Greene, you know, fight that's happening, the the the, the ruckus. Um, and I can just keep some of my more controversial members at bay here. I can be house speaker. And I think McCarthy senses that he's been waiting for this opportunity for a long time. He's playing the game with former president Trump down there in Florida. The GOP is playing the pro Trump game, obviously. And they clearly are kind of lessening the impact of their anti-Trump voices. And, and that's exactly why. And, you know, part of this is going to be gerrymandering and redistricting. Another one are these voting rights laws. I mean, that's a, this is a huge issue. I think a lot of people thought, well, Democrats won those Senate races in Georgia. Democrats control government. It's like, well, no, Democrats control the federal government, maybe barely by a teeny tiny margin. But the state legislatures are still overwhelmingly in favor of Republican agenda interest points. And that's where these voting laws are going to pass, which many people believe is going to make it more difficult for Democrats to do well. So, you know, Princeton has a study that says Democrats need to win more than something like 52 or 53 percent of the national vote in the midterms next year, just to maintain the power they have. In other words, they could win more than, they could win 51% of all the vote. And because the districts are going to be, the district maps are going to be redrawn, Republicans are still going to take control. So Democrats are really, really facing a difficult uphill battle. I think we'll be talking a lot more about that about a year from now as we get closer, but um, it's not looking great for Democrats to maintain in power, but you never know what'll happen. 
Yeah, yeah. The the uh, uh, the gerrymandering conversation is always very interesting, and I never really know exactly where to where where to where to land on it because my my instinct is to say that as wacky as drawing a a congressional district like a Lacoste alligator uh, is, uh, <laughs> it it is also something that I I I have I have a hard time believing is is the biggest you know issue that that ultimately uh-huh. it's like. I don't know. I, I feel like it might be a little bit overblown, and we've we've had guests talk about this. But anyway, yeah. Uh, uh, here is uh, my 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 big question to you from a political perspective. We talked about this a little bit on our Wednesday episode, but Politico ran a story about maybe some some Democratic uh, second guessing on how much they really want to push the idea of a House Select Committee into the January sixth. Uh, capital riots, uh, mm-hmm. with the idea being that, like, all right, if 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 one is we don't do anything and we just focus on other, uh, you know, bread and butter democratic points, uh, talking points like healthcare or whatever, and ten is we make January sixth our Benghazi and we dominate mm-hmm. coverage on it for the next, uh, you know, year and a half, uh, that maybe. Some are leaning more toward, well, maybe we should talk about healthcare the year after a pandemic. Like that seems like a winning issue for 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 Democrats. From your perspective, and I know that this is something that's very personal to you because you're in DC, is January 6th or putting Trump on the ballot in the midterms a boon for the Democrats? I if I'm really going to be honest here, the answer is absolutely yes. I mean, I walk the hallways of the Capitol, you know, some there several days a week and the scars of what happened are so palpable. And, you know, it's not going to come up at an average Republican press conference to talk with a GOP member, even if you talk to GOP voters. I think that's the other thing. Republicans go home to their districts. They're not hearing about January 6th from their voters. They're hearing about all these other issues that they'd far rather yeah. talk about. Um, but if you talk with members of the Capitol Hill police, Obviously, they have had such an incredibly difficult year losing so many members um, of their own. Um, Democratic staffers are going through a lot of trauma from the event. Reporters have gone through a lot of trauma of the event. And I think the senses from a lot of kind of at least Democratic strategists, I say, they say you'd, you'd really be making a mistake not to hold the GOP's got to be held accountable, right? We all saw those images. We were all watching live on television. Um, for really one of the darkest days that we've had in, 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 in the history of Washington, D.C., easily. And there is that sense. It's, I mean, whether or not Democrats want to fight, right? Because you know if the shoe were on the other foot, you'd get Benghazi, you get Secretary Clinton dragged in for 10, 11 hours, yeah. you know, and, and forced to answer all these nonsense questions. And, you know, are Democrats willing to finally play by the GOP playbook? Are they going to fight? down in the dirt the way that Republicans would had this been uh, had this been reversed. But I know I guess, a lot of Democrats but I guess here, say here's, no. Here's, they, here's, yeah. here's my question, though. Was Benghazi successful for the Republicans? It certainly took up a lot of time, but I don't think that it necessarily won them many elections. Well, did win them the big one. Yeah, but that they that's, did, that's you know, not. But I mean, that that, that was sure, sure. You can you can you can say that Pat Buchanan helped win them the big one by making the border <laughs> such a topic. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and there's no doubt about it. And Donald Trump needed to hit that inside straight on those three key states to win. Yeah. It was a long shot and he absolutely did it. No doubt. I still remember of, you know, you know, leader McCarthy is, has a little bit of a history of being gaff prone. Do you remember that year when he said, course, I think yeah. it was in a Fox interview, he's like, you know, look what happened. We launched the select committee on Benghazi and now secretary Clinton's polling. It's like in the tank and there everyone was like, you're not supposed to say that part you out can't, loud. You're you not can't supposed do to say that. Yeah. <laughs> You're not supposed to admit that that's the only reason we're doing all of this. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that's absolutely a fair point, whether or not that was a, a big contributing factor or not. But uh, what it did allow for whatever this is worth, and it may not be a lot, it did allow the Fox News of the world to incessantly have something to beat over the heads of their viewers over and over and over and over again. Do Democrats want to weaponize this the same way? You know, that kind of remains uh, I think that kind of remains to be seen. I know there's a lot of interest from people I talk to that are Democrats on Capitol Hill. They say, look, a select committee makes sense. And the fact that the bipartisan commission was the best opportunity for geo for the GOP to have a voice at the table. 
John, I mean, I, I, the person I feel the worst for is Congressman John Katko. Yeah. Because he was really doing the, he was doing the, he was, imagine just like doing your job. You have the blessing of your boss. You think you're doing the right thing. And then suddenly, as soon as you come out with your, your findings, everyone disowns you in your own party and says, well, he's not speaking for us. And you just got to be sitting there. If you're John Katko scratching your head saying, what did I waste all my time for? So absolutely an open question. I am very curious how you, if you think this is advantageous for Democrats to do a select committee. I know there, they there have is to. intense they interest have to. on Washington. They have to. They, 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 have, they, have, to. they yeah. have to do a select committee. How yeah. hard they hit the gas is something else. Because one thing that I do think is that, uh, uh, you know, Benghazi became something that was sticky for Fox News. Sure. But also the end result of this would be yet another gigantic Trump scandal. Right. And mm-hmm. I don't know whether or not in a midterm where he's literally not on the ballot, whether or not that is, you know, juice that is worth the squeeze. If there's diminishing returns after we've had so many capital G gigantic Trump scandals that, I mean, if it might kind of seem like Rocky five at a certain point, the, the, the thing that I think is intractable is this is a decision going to be made by people in D.C. and covered by people in D.C. And mm-hmm. there is no doubt that this January 6th is a potent, long lasting, traumatic local story. The question that I have is whether or not it's going to resonate in all these districts that's going to determine who holds the House and the states that will determine who holds the Senate. And, you know, a lot of voters there, they're going to be focused on things like crime. Um, there's a, a lot of reporting out that, you know, a lot of law enforcement agencies are worried about the summer of head and, and what a potential rise in violent crime looks like. They're going to be focused on immigration and the border. You're absolutely right. A lot of voters are not focused, um, sadly, maybe always on, on January 6th or the lingering impacts. But, you know, at the same time for Republicans, Look, man, I still think they have a lot of their own members who need to answer questions. Um, yeah. I don't know what to make of this of this purported, you know, McCarthy Trump phone call on the sixth. Who said what? What the motivations were? But I just know for a fact you have a lot of members, or at least several Republican members of the House, um, like Congressman Paul Gosar and Andy Biggs and um, you know Mo Brooks. About I mean, they have object. They have ties to the conspiratorial grifters who are responsible for the whole stop the steal fraud the Ali Alexanders of the world. I mean, Congressman Paul Gosar's personal Twitter account still has all of these very incriminating tweets leading up to including the day of January 6th. I don't think that's the sort of thing that Republicans do want pushed front and center because they have a lot of their own members who still really need to answer questions. Who are you communicating with? Why are you openly tweeting about your meetings and your your get-togethers and your communications with the people that we now know were responsible for fanning the flames of this conspiracy. Um, and certainly in that way, it, it makes it a lot different than the 9-11 Commission, which I know people had sort of made the comparison to. But it's a lot different when one of your two parties is um, may have members that are uh, a, a lot more directly involved um, than we had 20 years ago. One other thing that I would say, and by the time that people are listening to this, I mean, this will come out on uh, midnight leading into Friday. But by the time that people are listening to this on Friday day, if this jobs report comes out and it's a stinker and you know, as well as anybody that when the economy's in trouble, that's the only thing anybody wants to talk about in DC. Yeah. Yeah. You're not kidding. Um, especially if you were the minority party, not in yep. power and you can use it every opportunity to kind of beat up the policies, whether it's earned or not. Doesn't I think matter. Democrats did this doesn't a lot. Matter. Doesn't matter. Democrats went after Trump, I think, for a lot of stuff that he, the White House just did not deserve to be criticized for, but you do it anyway. Um, you're exactly right. Um, and so, you know, Republicans are going to say, well, you've 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 fattened the pockets of unemployment. You've given far too much money. No one wants to work now. Businesses are hurting. You, you've incentivized laziness, basically, um, yep. throughout the electorate. Um, you're absolutely going to continue to hear that. So, we love Jobs Reports Fridays for sure. 8.30 a.m., baby, Friday morning. 8.30 Friday. So, and, and I'm sure everybody's listening to this right now already knowing the results of that. But what they're really doing is heading to their DVRs and making sure that they have it set, that they are watching None of the Above, hosted by J.D. Durkin, debuting this Monday at 8 p.m. on Cheddar. Uh, uh, J.D., I said it before. I'll say it again. It is always... A, a true joy in my life to watch good people get rewarded. And this is something that I will be glued to the set for when you go live. 
Very kind of you, my man. Thank you for allowing me to come on to, to talk about the new show, to promote a bit. Always great to talk news of day with you. And, and I've always appreciated our, uh, our friendship in the industry and, and being able to collaborate with you and uh, always appreciate the time you're willing to give, man. Thank you so much. And, and thank you for the kind words again. Thank you, JD. And that's it for today. Politics, politics, politics was written and hosted by me. Justin Robert Young for Dog and Pony Show Audio in Austin, Texas. It was edited by Brett Stewart. If you want to thank J.D. Durkin for coming on the show, head on over to px3guest.com. That is where you can... uh, You want to know what? If you get Cheddar on cable, head on over there and just DVR it. DVR none of the above. And then take a picture, send it to JD on Twitter, px3guest.com. A reminder, Twitter is a lonely hellscape. And anybody who gives an unsolicited compliment is truly, truly a blessing. Do so for our guests if you enjoyed their time being spent with you today. You can email me at theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Our Twitter is px3tweets. Our Twitch is px3live. Our newsletter is px3newsletter.com. And our podcast is px3podcast.com. All of our Politics, Politics, Politics merch is available at politicsmerch.com, including our top-selling COVID shots equals body shots, tank tops, and much more. If you want to support the show with a one-time donation, it is paypal.me slash payjury. Our Venmo is justin-young-20. Including, I think we had a Venmo Buccaneer roll on into the saloon here. Let me go ahead and take a look. Yes, Ian Johnson. Ian, thank you. Thank you for being a Venmo Buccaneer. People send me $1. It's a great time. I love it. Because Venmo money isn't real. Our cash app is PX3Cash, and any physical gifts or checks can be sent to P.O. Box 153184, Austin, Texas 78715. The only way, however, that you get bonus content, including the Sunday, Sunday, Sunday show, which is put together as I watch all the Sunday programs and tell you the narratives that you need to pay attention to this week, And the late edition on Thursday is available if you head on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Sign up at the $3 tier. Also, our $10 tier is where you can get your name read at the end of the podcast like these fine folks in the Titanic $10 tier. Including... Headphones Neil, Dr. G, the other half of Whiskey Wednesday, Idris, the Government Unfiltered Podcast, 100 Mile Runner, Berkeley Stephen, Kathy Mack, Zombie Doc, D. Really, Methuselah, Hanithako, The Gen, Middle Age Mike, Dot Com Junkie, Calamity Zap, D. Laser, Lord Scale, De Quince, and Neil the Third, and Gloria Young for King of the New World Order, Utah, Jimmy Montana, Chad, Snuffies, Off Route 44. Miranda Janelle, Jenny, Robert, Casey, Paul, the most conscientious nonpartisan listeners, Brad, Charles, David, Olin, and Angela, DL, Just Another Pilot, Frozen Summers, Jay Pink, and Andrew. You want to join their ranks? Only one place to do it. Head on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. That's it for us this week. Have a great weekend, everybody. I know I will. It's going to be a bit of a working weekend, but uh, I got a lot of fun things on the horizon, and I hope you do as well. On the horizon for this show next week is a great interview that uh, uh, we recorded a week ago uh, or a couple days ago by the time that you're recording this or you're hearing this, rather. This is being unspooled for you in your ears. I'm falling apart here at the end of the week. Michael Cohen. Not that Michael Cohen. There's another Michael Cohen who works in politics. He's got a new book out about how uh, campaigns have advanced, but he's a nuts and bolts campaign guy. You know how much I love my nuts and bolts campaign guys. 
and we had an awesome interview. I feel like we became best friends. You're going to hear it next Wednesday. Till then, this is your old pal Justin Robert Young saying... Some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more talk about politics. But this, this is the only show that dares discuss Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs> Dog and Pony Show Audio.